because the story we're going to read this morning, you have probably heard or read as many times as you've been to Walmart. So you're like, what possibly is he going to say that's going to make any difference? Because I've heard this story time and time again, and it's old hat. I hope we don't do that. I hope we don't do that. If we do, we are missing the significance of our Savior uh, in this passage. Let's read, let's read down through it, beginning in verse 30, Mark 6. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Of course, they had been out teaching. Uh, he had sent them out. Then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. And he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Something that has happened in our, in our day is we have elevated man and made him great. And we have downsized the divine and made God small. We idolize celebrities, we worship athletes, and really there's an emptiness in our culture like I've never seen before. There is such an emptiness and a brokenness in our culture. Man is captivated by his pursuit of knowledge apart from Christ. Man is the captain of his own ship. This pursuit of knowledge apart from Christ leads to an empty life. And I'm going to give you an illustration of that. There was a young man who was a great athlete. He made it into the NFL. And here's what he says. Don't put the powder in your nose, I said as I looked in the mirror. Don't do it. I was sure I could talk myself out of snorting cocaine one more time. My words sounded so real, so genuine. But just like that, I saw my image disappear from the mirror, and I bent down and I took another hit off the table. 
It was an awful high. The chemicals of the cocaine laced through my body. At the same time, they battled against the guilt of my conscience. I would yell at myself, what are you doing? The tragedy of my addiction was that it threatened everything I had worked for. I was a defensive back for the San Diego Chargers. As he joins the NFL, the Chargers, as a rookie arriving at training camp, he's trying to establish himself in the league. Listen to what he says carefully to these words. I was in awe of all the veteran players. See, this is what's happening in our culture. There is this look of young people to athletes and celebrities and famous people and rich people, and they think that's life. That is a lie. That is not life. That is not awe. Awe is what we see here, what Jesus did in the pages of Scripture. So he has the wrong focus. He's looking to the wrong people. And he says, I was in awe of all the veteran players. A mistake. Some of whom I had looked up to for years. He says, I'll never forget the day I walked into the hotel room occupied by six partying veterans. Immediately, there was a dynamic in place that was nearly impossible to control. And then he says this, the pressure to get along, to fit in, was overwhelming. There's another mistake. The pressure to fit in. We don't belong in this world. We do not fit in to the culture. We are counter-cultural people if we're Christians. He says the pressure to fit in was overwhelming. So when the guys pulled out cocaine and passed it around, I had a decision to make, take part or be left out. Everybody was partaking, so, and they seemed no worse for the wear, though I knew it was wrong. I rationalized that it couldn't be all that bad if these successful guys were doing it. Who can blame them for letting off a little steam with all the pressure they were under? He says, after all, as long as it only happened every once in a while. But of course it didn't. The cocaine that I consumed that night, he said, took me by the lapels and forced me into submission. Soon enough, I was completely under its control. There I was at the top of the sports world, playing on TV every week, earning more money than I had ever made. And yet every chance I got, I drove myself to the seediest neighborhoods of the city and paid good money to a dealer who sold me poison. Fortunately, he said there were several guys on the team that were very vocal about Jesus. One guy, he said, was particularly downright aggressive <laughs> and got in his face. They said, if you were to die, would you go to heaven? Do you know Jesus wants your heart? What are you going to do? He said it freaked him out. One day, he says, on a chartered flight from a game, he's making his way down the aisle from the bathroom when that guy got into his face. He said one of his teammates then drove him down to a ramshackle crack house. He went inside to smoke crack. He went into the bathroom 
where he encountered a shriveled up skeleton of a soul in a dirty white tank top who was busy making a batch. He gave his life over to the drug and it was killing him. He said he felt sorry for him until he caught himself in the mirror. And he said, God said to me, what's the difference between you and him? Just then, his teammate entered the bathroom and the cook handed him a crack pipe. He stood in front of me, put that filthy thing in his mouth and he took a hit. He watched his eyes roll back in his head and his body go limp. He thought he was going to die. You want to try it? He asked me. I gulped, no. You're strong, he said. No, not strong, just scared. But even with all the fear, he said, coursing through his body, he still went to the next room by himself, took a hit of cocaine in a crack house with crackheads all over the place. He thought he had hit rock bottom. He began begging himself to not do it anymore, that he was throwing away his dream. He said, I would use again and again and again just one more day, just one more party. I just need one more. Finally, he said, one weekend came. The moment of truth arrived. I began a cocaine binge in the evening, and when 5 a.m. rolled around, I still hadn't gone to sleep. I felt the oppression of the drug on my life in a new way. I was shackled by my habit and utterly helpless against it. I fully believed it would kill me. If anything was going to free me, it had to be mightier than my addiction. I recalled what my Christian teammates had said about the power of Jesus, and so I called out to Jesus to save me. Who else was going to do it? I had already done the pep talking, the pleading, the cajoling. I tried to convince myself that I could handle it on my own, but I eventually had given up. I didn't have any more ideas how I was going to get myself out of this mess. It was God or nothing. When I got up off my knees, everything was different. I felt as if I had been delivered and all the desire to use had fallen away. From, by God's grace, from that point forward, I would never do drugs again. Every day since has been a testimony to the faithfulness of God. My story of the shackled man who gets set free has meant more to me than I could ever have imagined. You see, the story before us, if we only read it in light of the fact that Jesus saw a bunch of hungry people on the hillside, and he came and he just multiplied the loaves and the fishes and he gave them bread to eat, we've missed the point entirely, missed the point. Because it's a picture of the world and the emptiness of the world and the emptiness of life apart from Jesus Christ. And people who are trying to fill their lives with things from the world, the philosophy of the world, and somehow that that is going to satisfy. If I'm this NFL athlete, if I'm this NBA great star, if I'm this wonderful celebrity, if I make all of this money, it's empty. It's empty. Here's how it's said in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition 
and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Notice what it says. It takes us captive. It is hollow. We are hoodwinked by the hollowness of man's philosophy. There's no substance to it. It's like cotton candy. Cotton candy is big, colorful, sticky, full of sugar, and it doesn't satisfy. And that's pretty much what the world has to offer as well. It's big, it's fluffy, it's colorful, it looks good, but it doesn't have anything to satisfy or fill. You will walk away empty every time. God is so unlike us. He is far superior than any power, any wisdom, any philosophy. I like what Vance Havner says. Jesus is all we have. He is all we need and all we want. We are shipwrecked on God and stranded on omnipotence. He is all we have all we need and all we want. Jesus came in the flesh to show us what God looks like. He demonstrates his heart for people and his desire to rescue them from sin. He has incredible power to heal and cast out demons and raise the dead. The emptiness of man here is demonstrated in his hunger for food And the fullness of God is demonstrated in his overwhelming supply of all we need. Do you know why people are running to drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography? I mean, everything under the sun is because they don't know Jesus. They don't know him. The peer pressure that young people face, the reason you face that peer pressure It's going to always be there, but the reason it's greater than it would be is because you are not running to Jesus. When you run to Jesus, the peer pressure goes down. (laughs) It absolutely goes down. I believe that. I was a teenager. It goes down. Because you're not living for somebody else. You're not trying to find your identity in a group. You find your identity in Christ in a person. Man's hunger for food in this story is a picture of man's need for Christ. The hunger that we experience is the human heart that can only be filled by Christ. So a question we need to answer is, what do we do about our unmet needs? The needs that we do not have the ability to meet. Let's just talk about these real quick. The first one is the need for rest. Here, the disciples have come back from ministry. They were sent out by Jesus to preach repentance, to heal people, to deliver people from demons. But he tells them in verse 31, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now, that doesn't sound like Jesus. He kept a pretty busy schedule. He was running from place to place doing all these things, and he tells them to come apart and rest. Why? Because ministry is exhausting. I am thankful to our church leadership that they're giving us a sabbatical because we need rest. It is vital. 
It is important. And I'm thankful for that because I, I'm, I'm trusting that God is going to use that in our lives and I'm trusting he's going to use it in the life of this church. And I'm excited about the guys who will be bringing God's word to you to be able to give them an opportunity to grow and share. But rest is important. We are addicted in our culture to busyness. And busyness leads to barrenness. I will guarantee you, busyness leads to barrenness. When we don't have time to open the scripture and we don't have time to pray, and we don't have time to seek the Lord, we got time for video games, we got time for work, we got time for ball games, we got time for this and that. And say, so, you know, I just can't find time. The barrenness of busyness. We need rest. We need to come apart. We need to spend time with the Lord. It's important. And even work itself. It's necessary to have downtime to refresh and recharge physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. You know, one of the big things that is hurting our culture and families is workaholism. Yeah, it's hurting our families. Workaholism brings dysfunctional relationships because relationships take time and energy and investment. And workaholism is an escape. It's a way to medicate the hurts in our lives and a way to avoid relationships. Jesus is saying, come apart and rest. We need to have a balance of that. A second need we have here, well, here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was teaching around this sea, so I thought I'd put a couple pictures up here so you get an idea of the green countryside. It gets pretty brown in the summer. So this is early spring, a little before Passover. Uh, there's another picture uh, of the Sea of Galilee. The second thing we see here is our need for relationship. Look down at verse 33. Many who saw them leaving recognized them, ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. Jesus' relationship. He could relate. He could identify with the people. It's essential for a healthy relationship. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd have no direction. No purpose in life. And people that are like the NFL man that we read about a mile ago. And by the way, that NFL player, McPherson, Miles McPherson was his name, uh, is a pastor today in California. So God has used him in, in amazing ways. But we have this need for relationship. And God is there for us. He's not this God that's way off distant in the sky he is interested in the needs, the hurts, the habits, the hang-ups that I have, that you have, and he wants to minister to them. And he shows that with his compassion. Sheep are vulnerable to attack. We are defenseless by ourselves. We have no way to defend ourselves. We're susceptible to sickness and hunger. And God tells us how secure we are in our leadership, in, our, in his love. National security has been one of the hottest topics on the news, right? Building the wall, national security, put a wall on the border. 
all of that. Because without security, we can't enjoy life. But where are we placing our security? We should be placing it in the love of Christ and Christ alone. Here's what he tells us in Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives this grocery list of possibilities of things that could separate us from his love. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. He said, would one of those separate us from his love? And the answer is no. Let's look at him for a moment. Tribulation, what is that? It's called problems. Problems cannot separate me from God's love. Problems cannot separate you from God's love, no matter what your problem is. And we all have them. Problems cannot separate us from God's love. Your problems can cause you to feel intense pressure beyond your ability to endure. Some people have a problem of negative thinking. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. My problems are too big for God. I am damaged goods. Negative thinking. All of that negative thinking cannot separate you from God's love. You may feel separated from his love, but you don't rely on feelings. You rely on truth. We have to operate on truth. Teenager, you might be surprised, but God knows about every zit on your face. Yeah, it's a concern to you when you look in the mirror. Oh, there's another new one. God knows about every one of those. He knows about your inner struggles, your secret thoughts, your loneliness. Parents, he knows about your wayward children. The thing that burdens and breaks your heart, that does not separate you from God's love at all. Some sitting here this morning have been deeply hurt. Someone broke your heart. Someone criticized <clears throat> about you or gossiped about you. Someone has abused you verbally or physically and you have the scars to prove it. Maybe you've had to live through the pain of a broken home. Can I remind us of something? While a parent might abandon you, God will never abandon you. Nothing can separate you from his love. I had a young man share with me that he never knew his father sober. The only way he knew his father was with a needle, a weed, or a bottle. And his dad beat him constantly. That is not our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father is loving. He never changes. He never gives up on you. So I don't know what trouble you might face, but it does not separate you from God's love. How about distress? Hardship? R.C. Trench in his synonyms of the New Testament illustrates tribulation 
by an ancient English method of execution where a prisoner had increasingly heavy weights placed on his chest until he was crushed to death. <laughs> what a way to go, huh? He illustrates distress by another ancient form of punishment where prisoners were put into cages or cells where they did not have room to stand, sit, or lie at full length. They were hemmed in, squeezed. Do you ever feel pressured and squeezed? It doesn't separate you from God's love. Maybe you have physical challenges with your health, financial hardships because of unexpected events. It doesn't separate you from God's love. He goes on to talk about persecution. Someone has done something to you to harm you. Someone has slandered you or physically abused you. It doesn't separate you from God's love. The one thing the scripture does remind us of is this. Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he tells us in the Beatitudes that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right? It doesn't separate us from his love. He goes back and he talks about famine. The cupboards are bare. You experience poverty, nakedness, deprived of basic needs. You're still not separated from his love. Why would someone experience famine and nakedness? You know there are Christians who will not get jobs because of their stand for Christ. A few years ago in Atlanta, there was a fire chief who was fired because he wrote a Christian book. He has since won a lawsuit, but he was fired. He lost his job because he wrote a Christian book. We can face hardship, but it doesn't separate us from God's love. He goes on to talk about danger, peril, where you feel threatened by someone. Paul actually used this word danger eight times. Look here. Oh, do I have it? Maybe I don't have it in the right spot here. I guess I don't have that on there. I thought I did. Uh, here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 11.26. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. He says none of that separates us from the love of God. Paul had been beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead. He said none of it separates us from his love. It's a great reminder. He goes on to say, Romans 8, 37, know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who what? Loved us. When we think about the compassion of Jesus that he has for us. Romans 8.38, he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor anything else, he says, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. He's saying death can't even separate us from his love because as soon as we die, we're ushered into the presence of God. For those of us who are his children... 
Life can't separate us from God. He came to give us life and give it more abundantly. Angels are principalities. No spiritual force or power can separate us from God's love. Height or depth, you can't go too high or too low. Heaven or hell, there's no way to be separated from God's love. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Indeed, our chief defect as Christians is that we fail to realize Christ's love to us. How important it is that we should meditate upon this love and contemplate it. It is because we fail to do so that we tend to think at times that he has forgotten us or that he has left us. And here, Jesus has compassion on the hungry. That's us. We're the hungry. We're the spiritually hungry. He has compassion on us. Nothing can separate us from his love. Well, let's look at number three, our need for revelation. We have a need to know the truth. Jesus had a passion to tell the truth. Notice what he says at the verse, end of verse 34. So he began teaching them many things. Revelation, revealing himself to the people. Plato said there were two important questions in regard to teaching. One is, he said, who gets to teach our children? And number two, what do they teach them? Romans 3.20 says, it is through the law that we become conscious of sin. Jesus taught the law so that people would know that they are lawbreakers. We have a need for revelation. All scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The revelation of scripture tells me who God is, and it also tells me who I am. We learn about his greatness and our sinfulness, his divinity and our depravity, his majesty and our perversity, his benevolence and our brokenness. Philip said in John 14, 8, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Here is the revelation of God in the person of Christ. And he's saying, I am enough. I will provide all of your needs according to his riches and glory. But what do we have people doing with their needs? They run to something else other than God for their needs. The fourth thing we need is our need for resources. He covers that in the last several verses, beginning in verse 35 and following where he gives them the bread. A basic resource we need for survival. The Jewish head of the family would pray a traditional prayer of blessing over the meal, and perhaps Jesus did the same. Here's what a typical Jewish head of a family would pray. 
as they hold the bread. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the world, who bringest forth bread from the earth. And then he breaks it and he distributes it. And we do not understand how he took five loaves and then they all had it. Jews, though, everywhere they traveled, they traveled with a basket. They would carry their food in their basket. Or they would carry an empty basket and beg and try to get stuff for their basket. The disciples wanted to send the crowd away. I wonder if we're a little bit like the disciples. When people are hungry, spiritually hungry, how do we respond toward them? People that we rub shoulders with in the marketplace, people that we see and they have this hunger inside, do we just say, man, look at that person. What a mess they are. Or do we see a spiritually hungry person who doesn't know Jesus? They have no resources. They have no relationship. They don't understand rest. The disciples wanted to send them away. Jesus says in verse 37, no, you give them something to eat. Now, Jesus was giving a request that he knew they couldn't fulfill. Why? He wanted to show the insufficiency of us to do his work. We can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. We are inadequate of ourselves. But he also wanted to show the majesty and the power of God in miraculously supplying the need. And it wasn't the first time God had done it. Clear back in the book of Exodus, I can only imagine that some people were sitting in the crowd and they're thinking, wait a minute. I remember something from the Old Testament that reminds me of what just happened. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 12, it says, God says, I heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And then he says, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Why? Because he supplied their need. We see a similar situation in Elijah in the narrative. When God tells the ravens, he tells Elijah, the ravens are going to take care of you and feed you bread. God moves the birds and supplies the bread. And then later, he commands a widow to supply Elijah with food, and she's down to her last meal. She's just got a little stuff left in the jar and a little bit of stuff, and she's down to her last meal for her and her son to eat, and they're going to die. He says, Elijah says, well, give me food first because God's going to supply. And every day, the woman had supply. I mean... How does that happen? It's the power of God. It's the power of God. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the thing that we see here in verse 42 
they all ate and were satisfied. You see, when we are satisfied with Jesus, we don't need anything else. I don't need a drug. I don't need a bottle. I don't need a relationship. I don't need, I, I don't need anything else. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. When we are satisfied with Jesus, we don't need anything else. And this is what we have to offer a world that is hungry, that is searching. But the problem is, too many in the church don't believe it. Because if we did, we'd be more passionate about it. Let's pray. Right before I pray, let me ask you, do you have the eyes of Jesus in seeing the crowd, the hungry crowd, the crowd that is looking for compassion, looking for love? The crowd that is hungry, that is searching. There will be undoubtedly people this week who will be looking for, and maybe not looking for, but it's going to come to them, some kind of drug, some kind of opportunity. And they'll be hoodwinked because they haven't found satisfaction in Christ yet. I think about the NFL player that I shared with at the outset <clears throat> who wanted to fit in. The reason we want to fit in is because we try to find our identity in other people rather than in Christ. The reason we run to a drug or a bottle is because we're trying to find something that will medicate the pain rather than Christ who will heal the pain of your heart. The world offers promises but delivers lies. Christ offers promises and he fulfills them all. Maybe you're here this morning and you have, do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. You have looked in the wrong places. You have put your faith in the wrong things, the wrong people. You have looked up to other people rather than to the Lord. And maybe put people on a pedestal. Would you be willing to put God on the throne of your life? Make him Lord of your life. Give him all of your heart. Not part of it.
Vance Habner said, Jesus is all we have, he is all we need, and all we want. We are shipwrecked on God and stranded on omnipotence. Are you hungry to see God move in Bethesda Church and the Huron community? There are so many hungry people around us. And we, God has given us the bread. We are the delivery men and women with the bread to take to the hungry. Will we? Will we? Who is on your prayer list right now that you are praying for that they will receive the bread of life? Who is it that has burdened you that you have tears stained in your Bible that you are praying for right now? Because they are feeding on the world, but they're empty. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you can invite him into your life right there in your seat, and I would encourage you to do that. If you need to be delivered from something, if you are trusting in something else for the needs in your life, would you trust the Lord Jesus Christ right now? If we can pray with you after the service, we'd be glad to do that. you've enjoyed today's message if you would like to know more about bethesda church you can check us out on the web by going to our website which is bethesdamb.org that's bethesda m as in mary b as in boy.org or check us out on facebook by searching for bethesda church of Huron. have a blessed day